Well, my name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and uh, we're really glad you're here with us today at our uh, 12 o'clock service. And I got to tell you that all morning long, um, I've just been reminded of how blessed I feel to be a part of this church and uh, to be a part of just some awesome things that are happening here. We've we really have had a great morning today, and, uh, and not only today, but last weekend, last Sunday, I wasn't preaching, and I don't know what to do when I'm not preaching. And if you've been around for a while, you may or may not know that we're now one church in two locations, and so we have a campus in Carmel, and I was able to head over there. They have a 1030 service, and I was at that service last week, and it was so encouraging. If you haven't had a chance to go over there and check it out, I mean, it really is pretty incredible to see all of the people that are serving, to see some familiar faces that you maybe haven't seen in a while and wondered where they went. Well, they're over there. They're over there serving. And in addition to their service, there are a number of people that are coming that maybe haven't been a part of a church, maybe never been a part of a church or haven't been a part of one in a long time. And just stories of, hey, I was driving by, saw the banners, you know, stories like we hear in Noblesville, here in Noblesville all the time. And and so again, it's so encouraging to see what is happening over there. But, um, I'm really encouraged today, and I'm glad that you're here uh, for our 12 o'clock service, especially on opening day, NFL Sunday. That's what DVR is for, right? All right, because you can still get home and and see the game, but we're glad to have you here at 12, and I I only hope and pray that this service continues to grow, and you can help get the word out, all right? You can help get the word out about, hey, there's a lot of seats, you know, at 12, and and we need to do a better job. The bagels have been running short. Uh, I think all of our college students are eating up the bagels, so we'll keep adding to that number to make sure that if you missed a bagel today, that we still have those bagels at 12 o'clock. But we're starting a brand new series today called Big Church, and we're going to be looking at the book of Acts and the first church uh, over these next five, six weeks uh, with one another. And so I, I'd challenge you, I'd encourage you to read through the book of Acts, uh, make it a part of your reading time. It's a, it's a story. I mean, it's a historical account, but you'll be able to kind of follow along some chronological events. And uh, I'd encourage you to check it out, this, uh, this book of Acts and, and how it applies to the series Big Church. Um, but I want to ask you as we get started today, when you hear the word church, what do you think of? I mean, just when you hear that word church, you know, what comes to mind? I mean, I think there's a really good chance that when you hear the word church, you probably think of a building, right? I mean, and whether it's this one or maybe a church that you used to attend or the one that you grew up in, uh, some people, maybe you're a little more traditional. And so if you hear the word church, you kind of think white steeple, you know, cross on top, you know, sort of a, a building. Maybe you think worship style. Well, we've got a number of churches uh, in the U.S., and we've got a lot of churches right here in central Indiana. I mean, we're, we're blessed, and we're blessed with the freedom to be able to come into a place like this to worship on a Sunday. But chances are that you probably passed at least a dozen churches driving here today, uh, depending on how far away you've come. I mean, we, we've got a lot of churches in our community. Um, growing up, my dad was a pastor, and he preached at a bunch of different churches. And so as a kid, I had the privilege of seeing a number of different church communities. And every church had their own way of doing things. And my dad was mostly at these smaller rural churches. I remember one time we were, uh, he, he preached for about a year in a church in Alsea, Illinois. All right, anybody here ever heard of Alsea, Illinois? 
Nobody has all morning long. Nobody's heard of Alsea. It's just a, a teeny tiny town in central Illinois. But I got to be honest with you, there were some good things happening in Alsea. I mean, for a small rural community, I mean, things were really happening there. And there were a lot of people coming to this church and there was some energy there. But I'll tell you what I remember most of all from our one year in Alsea, Illinois. Here's what I remember. They had a, a sanctuary much smaller than this with pews and all. And in the very back of the room, up against the back wall was this large grandfather clock. All right. Now you might think, well, okay, but well, what does a grandfather clock do? Well, a grandfather clock has an alarm, right? I mean, it specializes in like 12 o'clock noon. And so here's what would happen every Sunday at this church. The service would start about 10:45, 11 o'clock. But sure enough, at 12 o'clock, that alarm would just start, bong, bong, and my dad wasn't allowed to touch it. All right, it didn't matter if he was the pastor or not. He, ha- he did not have permission to touch that clock. It was given in memory of someone, but it was more than just the memory. That alarm was a reminder to the pastor that we finish at 12, all right? 12 o'clock means lunchtime. So it didn't matter. My dad could have been preaching his heart out. Jesus could have been preaching from the stage. At 12 o'clock, it meant it's time to wrap things up. It's lunchtime, all right? And, and so that's, that's what I remember from this particular church. And I, I've been to a bunch of different churches in my life, maybe like some of you, big churches and small churches, traditional churches and non-traditional churches. I served on staff at a really large church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I remember when Genesis Church was a church of, uh, of 200. There are churches all over central Indiana, all over this country, and all all around the world. And many of you today, you're here from different churches. You know, maybe you grew up in a church. Maybe you went to church with grandma and grandpa, or you know, you grew up going to church. Maybe there was a particular church that you were married in. Maybe, maybe you haven't been in church in a long time, and you're just kind of getting back. Maybe it was a friend that invited you, or maybe when it comes to this idea of being in a church or going to church, it's like brand new to you because you're just getting started in it. I mean, if we're honest, the word church lends itself to all sorts of ideas and thoughts and images. And some of those are positive and some of those can be very negative. But whatever you think of, whatever you picture when you hear the word church, my guess is that it's a different picture of what people thought of in the first century, in the book of Acts, as we see the very first church. And it might surprise you that in the very first church, in the book of Acts, that it began as a movement and not as an institution. It wasn't about a building. It wasn't about a location. There were no service times. There were no sermon series. There were no bands. There were no youth groups. I mean, from the very beginning, the church began as a movement, and it began as a movement around one very powerful yet simple message, and that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you and I can be forgiven of our sins. That was the message of this first church. And the first church was launched not only with this message, but it was launched out of an event in history, a particular event, and that event would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was that one event and the testimony of the eyewitnesses to that event that launched the local church. And so today, we begin this series, like a number of other churches that have done, we begin this series called Big Church. And with this series, Big Church, you know, why are we calling it Big Church? Well, it's not because we're obsessed with becoming a large church. It's not because big churches get it right and little churches don't. It has nothing to do with the difference between non-traditional or traditional churches. It doesn't have anything to do with the size of the congregation or the size of the building. We're calling this series Big Church because as one of my favorite pastors says, the church is a big deal. I mean, it really is the hope of the world. And when the church is getting it right, 
the church is about a big message. And that big message being that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that He rose from the dead, and that this one event, that these events change everything. If you're taking notes, write this down. The first church began as a movement. It really did. It began as a movement, and it began as a movement, and it continues as a movement locally and around the world today. But unfortunately, not everyone always sees it that way. You know, and there have been specific times in history where this wasn't always the case. And so what I want to start out and do today as we begin in this series is to give you a brief little history lesson of how the first church came together. We're going to spend about half of our time doing this, and then we're going to spend the last half of our time today looking at the beginnings of Acts chapter 1 and 2, and then we'll continue more into it next week. But as a way of setting up this history lesson, I want to teach you a little word, a little Greek word uh, that Dr. Shively taught me in my Greek class at Anderson University. Uh, And that Greek Greek word is where we get our word church, and it's the word ecclesia. And it's in your notes, it's the word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia means assembly, it, it means congregation, it means gathering, or called out ones. And when Jesus launched the church in Matthew 16, <clears throat> we'll look at that verse in just a moment, he launched the church as a gathering or as an ecclesia, and he launched the church around one simple life changing message. But unfortunately, something terrible happened in history. And as time went on, there was this transition from this idea of church as a movement to church as a location. It went from being all about a message to being about a particular building or a particular location. And over time, the church became a hierarchy of sorts. And whereas Jesus established the first church on the news of his death and resurrection, over the years, the church transitioned into less important Entirely different things. Now, if you know any history at all, any history of the early church, or, or let's just say this, if, if you know people, whether they've been in the church or outside of the church, you know that the church over the last 20 centuries has endured some really embarrassing times. You know, and, and as, you know, over the last 2,000 years and over the course of history, the church, you know, as this gathering or this movement of people has been redefined more often than not as a place or as a location. I mean, think about how often you and I do that just in our regular talk, in our everyday language. We'll say things like, well, you know, I'm going to go to church tomorrow, right? Or maybe today you said, I, I don't care what you kids think, we're going to church today, you know? Uh, or maybe you've driven down Pleasant Street before with a friend and you've pointed to this building and said, hey, yeah, that's where I go to church. Yeah, we really do meet in an old warehouse. I mean, that's where I go to church. I mean, we all say things like this, right? I mean, I say things like this. I, I talk like this. Well, sadly enough, what Jesus initiated as a movement of people around a message has become more about a location or a building instead. And And when you think about it, it's really a throwback to the way that things used to be in the Old Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, the people gathered at the temple. I mean, you went to the temple. They believed God lived in the temple. And then there was this shift around 300 A.D. from church as a movement to church being more about a place or a location. And because of that, there was some terrible theology that really birthed from it. I mean, before long, you know, the church was defined as a building. And whoever controlled the building, they controlled the church. And whoever controlled the building controlled the scriptures. And if you controlled the scriptures, then you controlled the message and you controlled the people. And in many instances throughout history, if you controlled the people, then you were able to control the government too. And what resulted? Well, in just so many situations throughout history, there's this ugly expression of the gospel. And the church became very exclusive and very inward focused. You know, the church developed a reputation for being unethical and immoral. And what started out as this movement 
around the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ over a few hundred years morphed into something that was really not from God at all. But thankfully, along the way, different men and women showed up throughout history and sacrificed their lives to help bring the church back to the heart of God. And one of those change your world types was a guy by the name of William Tyndale. Just kind of say hi, William. Just kind of get a good look at William there. William was born in 1494 in England, and he was a famous author, brilliant, uh, famous scholar. In fact, he was very fluent in languages. They said something like eight different languages that he was able to speak fluently, that he knew them so well that many people would often say about him that if you didn't know that he was born in England, you wouldn't be able to tell from an accent or anything what his native language really was. Now, not only was he a man of languages, but he was also a man of great faith. And one of William Tyndale's passion, in fact, his great passion, was to put the Word of God into the hands of ordinary people. See, Tyndale lived in a day where ordinary people like you and me didn't have access to the Bible. You know, the church controlled the Bible as the Bible was only available in languages that, you know, common people like you and me weren't able to to speak. So very few had access. And what's the problem with this? Well, as you can imagine, if you controlled the scriptures, then you controlled the message, you controlled the church, and therefore you controlled the people. And with this control, you know, anyone could take the message and change it to anything that they believe that it should say. And so, I mean, we all know the horrible manipulation that can come out of something like this. Tyndale had enough. He he began translating the scriptures into the English language and that this didn't make the church leaders in England very happy, very pleased. And so he was forced into exile. He ended up in Germany where he continued his work of translation. And thanks to people like Johann Gutenberg and the printing press, you know, he was able to translate these works so that they were copied and mass produced and that people could have Bibles. And these Bibles were printed and made available to people living back in England. It took a so-called friend who betrayed William Tyndale and lured him back to England where he was tried and captured and tried as a heretic. Uh, he, He was declared an enemy of the church. He was hanged and his body was burned at the stake just to make sure uh, that he was dead. But although he was dead, it was too late. I mean, the work had been done, and for the first time ever, common people, ordinary people, had a Bible and could read it. And this, this misled institutional church that for so long had manipulated people and been defined by locations slowly began to lose its power. Again, it was Tyndale's passion to give the people a copy of the Bible. And in addition to his translations of Scripture, he also provided commentary on some of the Bible's most important messages and passages, reminding people that the church is not a building. And he made sure that word ecclesia was in there, that it's not an institution, but the church is about a movement. It's about a gathering of people around a a, a big and and world. Or a location. And the church, when the church is getting it right, is about a movement. And that's exactly what Jesus taught us. If you've got your Bibles, uh, go to the New Testament, uh, to the first gospel, the very first book in the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Look at verses 6, go to 16 and then verses 17 and 18 for just a moment. Uh, There's a situation that I want to look at briefly with you here in Matthew where Jesus gathered his disciples together and he asked them this question. He, He had not been crucified yet and so this is before his crucifixion, but he's with his disciples. He asked this question, he just says, hey, who do people say that I am? 
I mean, what, what is it when you get together with other people outside of this group, what are people saying about me? And some of the disciples said, well, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist. Uh, some say that you must be a reincarnated Old Testament prophet or something. But, but, but Peter spoke up and he said, I'll, I'll tell you who you are, Jesus. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you really are the son of the living God. And here's what Jesus said in return, beginning in verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He's talking about Peter here. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? He was looking at Peter and he was speaking before his disciples. And here's what he was saying. He said, Peter, what you say is true. This is the message. This is the foundation. The the testimony, the words that you've just proclaimed, you know, around the message of my death and, and my resurrection, this will be the message until I return again one day, until my second coming. This is the message. This will be the foundation of the church. And it just got me thinking, is that really still the message today? I mean, is that the priority? I mean, if we embrace, you know, this foundation that Jesus has established for us 2,000 years ago that is still true and right today, that, that the message of the church, that the message for you and me as followers of Jesus will be this great big message that Jesus Christ is the risen, you know, the son of the living God and everything changes with that. Is that still the priority today in our churches? I, I don't know if that's the case. I don't, I don't know if that's always the priority, you know, because sometimes the priority becomes the building, doesn't it? I've been to churches like that. The priority becomes the building. The priority becomes all about the location. The priority becomes, well, this is the way we've always done things. Or, you know, in some churches, the priority becomes the translation that you use. You know, in some churches, like, it's got to be King James. You know, it's, there's nothing that gets me more upset than churches that say, oh, it's got to be King James. Because it's like, you know what? Don't wimp out on us. You know, I mean, if you're going to go that far, go all the way. Go Greek and Hebrew, you know. Don't pull up short, you know. But, but, you know, some churches, we, we stand on these grounds, these hills of this is what it will be all about for us. For some churches, it's all about a style of worship. And I just got to tell you that if we're not careful, it could, something like that could be the truth for us one day. You know, because I, I think there's probably a good chance that our worship music, for most people at least, I mean, it's part of the reason why you come here, but that could change one day. I mean, I grew up in a church with hymns. I really did. It was a very traditional church. I, I can still remember my grandma, you know, saying, I remember, you know, when, when that church changed, you know, we used to do hymns all the time. Those were the good old days, you know. I, I wonder, will 30, 40 years from now, you know, if I'm still a part of Genesis, if I had that privilege, I'd be like, I remember that when we used to sing Hillsong United all the time. Yeah, those were the good old days, you know, or David Crowder. I mean, if we're not careful, the priority can easily become something else. But Jesus said, hey, here's the priority. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the message. It's not a building. It's not a style of worship. The church is a movement. And not long after Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, he was crucified. But he didn't stay in the tomb. And following his resurrection, he spent about 40 days on the earth. You know, plenty of time with his closest followers. And after those 40 days had passed, you know, Jesus gathered his disciples one time, one last time together at a place called the Mount of Olives. And he gave them these final instructions. Uh, we call it the Great Commission. All right. 
Uh, you can find an account of this Great Commission in Matthew 28. Uh, but we're going to look at a second account in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Would you turn there uh, with me right now if you would? And I got a cough. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a bottle of water down here, so I'm going to... And there's just enough to give me just a little bit of moisture. All right, so Acts chapter 1. If you turn over to Acts 1, you'll find that Jesus uses his final moments, his final words to predict the start of the, uh, the beginning of the church. Now, again, he's already established the foundation, the message in Matthew 16. He, he's outlined the fact that the starting point of this movement for this church was on the message of Jesus Christ, the living God. But now he's using these last few moments with his disciples to launch this movement. Let's look at how that comes together, starting in Acts 1, beginning in verse 6. <coughs> it says, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, they pictured an earthly kingdom, an earthly king, a, a military conqueror, and they thought Jesus, you know, was, 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 was going to step to this right now. But here's his response. Here's what he said to them, verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Jesus says, hey, there's something else better coming. There, there is something greater that I have for you. You know, he, he says there is a power. You know, the Holy Spirit is coming. You know, God himself, God living in you. He is coming and he will be on you and that will change everything. And then he said, and you will be my witness. Now, what does a witness do? A witness represents something. A witness, a witness gives testimony to something. And Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to speak of things that have happened in the past and how they apply today. And he says, and you're going to be a witness in Jerusalem and in, all, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thanks, Elijah. Here, give me, right here. Just give me one of those. Thanks, man. Thank you. <laughs> it's good for everyone, right? I saw Josh Tandy slipped out to get me something too. So if we run out, Josh has got me in the back. I thought he was just mad. I thought he was tired of listening to me. He's like our grandfather clock, right? Uh, all right, so... Can you imagine what's going through these disciples' minds? I mean, they, they've got these final moments with Jesus. He's died on the cross. He came back from the dead. Now he's about, they know something's up. He's going to ascend into heaven. But Jesus is like, hey, as I leave, here's your mission. I want you to take this news. I want you to take you to this great big message to all the people of Jerusalem. And then when you're done there, you're going to go beyond Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and Samaria. You're going to continue with this message. And then, and even when you're done with that, even when there's still more work to do, you're going to go out into what Jesus says to the ends of the earth. Now, the funny thing is that for the people that Jesus is talking to, they, they didn't know anything but Israel. All right, I mean, this teeny tiny place in the world. Now, Jesus had to be laughing to himself thinking, you know what? You have no idea what's out there. You have no idea how great and how big this world is and what it means to take this message and how this message, this movement is going to touch every corner of the world. So Jesus ascends into heaven. Ten days after his ascension... You know, there's this Jewish celebration in Jerusalem known as Pentecost. Now, Jewish people came from all over the Roman Empire. They traveled to Jerusalem for this festival. And we find out later in the book of Acts that there were Jewish people and converts to Judaism from over a dozen different regions from the world who came to Jerusalem for this particular event. 
Now, while this Jewish holiday is taking place, a group of about 120 Christ followers, 120 Christians, even though they weren't called Christians yet, that doesn't come until later in the book of Acts, but these, this central group, these witnesses to both the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, are, are meeting together in this place. And so Mary was there, Jesus' brothers were there, the apostles were there. And as they were meeting, Acts 2 explains that this wind, this fire, this power from heaven, that it came over them and it changed them. And, and, and just as Jesus had predicted, this power was now coming on them to do all of these new things. You know, the, the Spirit manifested Himself. God Himself was manifesting Himself in a new way, in such a way that these followers of Jesus were miraculous able to sp- miraculously able to speak the languages of the foreign people who had all come to Jerusalem for this festival. You can read this for yourself in Acts 2. So what did they do? They went out, these 120, they went out into the city to be amongst the people. Now, they all knew that something was going on. And so as you read it for yourself, you'll find that there was some confusion and there was some commotion, but there was energy and there was power present and there was all of this excitement pouring out of the apostles and they were talking about Jesus and they were talking about his crucifixion and they were talking about how he returned from the dead. And again, there's this great commotion in Jerusalem and it all centered around the power and the clarity of a message that Jesus is the risen Christ, the son of the living God. And because of this, everything changes. Acts 2 is opening day church. All right, I mean, it is the beginning of it all. Read it for yourself. This is the very beginning opening day and all the excitement that comes with it, you know, kind of like today for us, right? NFL, I mean, I know there was a game this past week, but today's the day, all right? In 11 minutes, don't leave here, you know, the Colts kick off, all right? And maybe you're a Colts fan. I've seen Bears jerseys this morning. How dare they? I've seen Redskins jerseys, and there's always our Minnesota Viking jersey present. Um, you know, maybe you're a fantasy football fan, and so you've been anticipating today, and that was the case with these disciples, these early followers, Jesus had predicted the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so they're anticipating this event. And now the Holy Spirit has arrived and something new is happening. And what next? Well, it's in Acts 2 where we find the very first sermon. And who did it come from? It came from Peter. And under the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, Peter stepped to a place where everyone could see and he launches into this first message. Let's look, a little bit, look at it, a little bit of it together, starting in verse 22. Acts 2, verse 22. Here's what Peter says. All these people listening. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. What a great reminder to you and me that God never loses control. He had a plan for Jesus and nothing ever went off course in his plan for Jesus and that continues today. And Peter says, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, remember, this is only about two months after the resurrection, which means that as Peter is talking, some of them are thinking, I know who he's talking about. Like, I remember Jesus teaching at the temple. He healed that guy. I mean, He hadn't walked in a long time and he was walking again. I mean, some remember the crucifixion of this man. Peter continues in verse 24. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is Peter's preaching the good news. 
I mean, this is the, the big message. I mean, he, he's preaching the gospel now. Verse 32, if you skip over some verses. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to it. Remember that word, witnesses? We saw it in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. You will represent something. You, you will talk of things in the past. You know, Peter and others are not simply giving testimony to something they had been taught. They're talking about something that they've already seen. They witnessed it with their own eyes. I mean, from the very beginning, Christianity was so much more than just embracing teaching, as important as that is, but embracing an event in history, and it's the cross. And these disciples, Peter included, were witnesses to the cross, and more importantly, witnesses to an empty tomb and a risen Jesus. Verse 33, Peter says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see And here, you know, Peter continues, the crucified one, the resurrected one is now the exalted one. And he occupies the highest honor, the highest honor in heaven. And that throne gives him position and that throne gives him the authority to pour out on us the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the Holy Spirit on us as we see here today. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel, all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is if you read this sermon for yourself, Peter just kind of keeps interjecting this little jab about you crucifying the Messiah. I mean, he's talking to the Jewish people who are present here because and he says, you know, whom you crucified again, because some were there. You know, some voted for this. Some shouted, you know, for the crucifixion of Jesus. Some, you know, spit on Jesus as he walked by with his cross. And so Peter's making some strong statements. And look at their response now in verse 37. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Meaning they they felt it. There was a a sharp sting in them. Some genuine pain. and, And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, they heard these words. There's this crowd of thousands of people and they responded, what do we do now? Like, I get it. I hear it. And I've been a part of this now. What do we do? I mean, is there any hope for us on this day? And what was Peter's response? You know, thankfully they were asking a question and he was ready for an answer. And you know what he said? He said, I'm glad you asked because next weekend we're starting five services, you know, at a, at a building down the street or, you know, we're starting a Saturday night service. We'd love for you to come and be a part of it. That wasn't his response. And what I want to draw your attention to is what happened on the opening day. I mean, this here, right here in Acts 2 is the start of it all. You've got all the excitement, all of the wonder, all of the energy, but it wasn't people who were like saying, man, I know I got to get back to church. You know, or I really need to get to church. I mean, here's the funny thing. On, on opening day, first century, that's not going to make sense to anyone. I mean, the church wasn't a place. It wasn't a 9, a 10.30, or a 12 o'clock service. The church was a gathering. It was a multiplying movement around one very big message. And the goal was to make sure that that big message got out to the rest of the world. But we've got people waiting. And so in verse 38, Peter replied, here's what you do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now let's look at verse 39 for just a second and then we'll go back to 38. 
Do you know who the far off are that Peter's talking about? It's you and me. I mean, it's your grandma, your grandpa, it's your mom or your dad. Uh, It's your youth pastor that told you about Jesus when you were in middle school or in high school or something. I mean, Peter's saying, hey, this isn't going to be just a Jerusalem thing. This isn't a fad that's going to go away in the next few years or in the next 100 years. This big message is a message for the entire world and for all of the future generations that will come. And remember, Peter's speaking to a large crowd, and these people were all over the world And they all speak these different languages, but with the power of the Spirit, he was able to say these words in a language that everyone could understand. And when he gets to verse 38, go back to 38 now, we really find the first altar call. Now, I don't know if you grew up in a church with an altar call. Um, We were talking about that this morning before services started about what's an altar call. Well, the church that I grew up in, uh, every Sunday they would have an altar call. And so the pastor would finish his message um, and you were invited to come down as they played the last song and give your life to Jesus, surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And I did that when I was 11 years old. I could walk you to the seat of where I was in that particular building. I got up and I walked to the front and I invited Jesus into my heart and I was baptized later. Um, It was frightening. I mean, to get up in front of all those people and do that. And I'm not saying that that's how you have to do it. It's just one way. You know, here at Genesis, there are times where we invite you, if you want to invite Jesus Christ into your life, to raise your hand. The Bible doesn't say anything about that, but just kind of a way, a, a step, a response for you. Maybe that happened that way for you. That counts. Uh, Maybe it was just you and God and no one else when you voiced a prayer. I mean, you didn't even know the words to say, but you knew what you were doing, and I can guarantee you that God did too. Like, He knew your heart. I mean, He knew the turn of your heart. It's not so much about a method, but the question really is, have you? Have you responded to the good news? Have you responded to the message that Jesus is the risen Christ? the Son of the living God, that you can have forgiveness of your sins. I mean, that, that's what Peter is leading the people to do. He's giving them the opportunity to respond. And in verse 41, it says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's 3,000 men, women, and children that, that respond, that stand face-to-face in the power and the reality of this message that Peter's proclaiming. And 3,000 people surrendered to their lives to Jesus in one day. I mean, they joined the church on opening day and were baptized. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how many t-shirts, you know, they had to buy, you know, to, to put on these people as they were baptized and the line that must have stretched from this little round tub of water? Well, that's not the case. I mean, you know, the reality is that probably over a matter of consecutive days, they were baptized in probably any body of water that you can find. And they celebrated you know, much like we do here, we're going to baptize people in October. If you're ready to respond to the message, if you've never been baptized before, maybe that's something that you ought to look into doing. We'd love to talk with you about that. But the truth is that people were baptized and it was a big deal. And on this first day, there was momentum and there was movement as thousands of people embraced the message of Jesus Christ and they repented of their sins and they were included in this new gathering, the ecclesia and the church. And 2,000 years later, here we are. I mean, what other message has persevered over the last 2,000 years? And here we are today, 
And all over this community today and all around the state and around the world, people will gather in buildings and homes and parks and gyms and caves and huts and in warehouses in the name of Jesus. And do you know what the common denominator needs to be? Not a style of worship, not a dress code, not a building, but the message. The message that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, He changes lives. That'll all, that will be the driving message for our church. And, you know, for 2,000 years, the church has endured some really rough times, some really embarrassing times as they've strayed, as the church has strayed from its purpose and its leadership under Jesus Christ. But all throughout the years, God has continually preserved the power of the gospel with men and women like William Tyndale and so many others who helped to lead the church back to its purpose, back to its focus, back to its mission. And William Tyndale provided these translations for us too, the opportunity to read something like Acts 7.48, which reminds us, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. And a verse like 1 Corinthians 3.16 that says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? That verse reminds us that you are the church. You and I, we are the church. And that is the responsibility that God has given to us to share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and how that message can change others too. And do you know what I love about Genesis? I love it because I, I really believe you get this. That we get this, that we're craving it, that we're not perfect, that we've got a lot to do and there's a lot of work still to be done. But, but you know that when you meet in groups, you gather in groups because you know that you're the church. And when you serve, you don't sign up to serve just as a way of checking it off of your list of one of your responsibilities of being a part of this place, but you serve in Gen Kids and with students because you're the church. And you know that when you go back to your home today or when you go back to your neighborhood or you go back to your apartment complex or your college campus, that you are the church and that you're a church that was willing to take out a step, to take a step of faith, to help launch another campus in Carmel. And not because it's about a new building and not because it's another service time that we can invite people to but it's about being the church. And the church is at its best and the church is getting, its, getting it right when, when it's not about a building, it's not about a location, but it's about a message that Jesus is the risen Christ, the son of the living God, and that this message changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can even proclaim that message today. And we have the freedom to come into a place like this and to worship and I'm certainly not discounting the importance of worship in any way, and I don't want to discount the gift that you've given to us in this facility, but we want to be reminded today that it's about the message. And I pray that you would remind us that that message begins with us. It begins with me. That I'd be reminded today of what you've done for me in my life with your death and with your resurrection and how I have forgiveness today. And how others, many others here today have that too, or can have that too, if they choose to respond to it. God, keep our eyes focused on you and to what you have in mind for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.